Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. Over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan. And Cassidy Zachary. Okay, so I'm going to wager that all of us have at some point or another owned one of the most ubiquitous clothing items in the world. And that clothing item is blue jeans. Mm -hmm. And I am going to wager that many Americans think we know the history of arguably the single most iconic item of American clothing. For instance, its associations with Levi Strauss and the Wild Wild West. But as today's guest will reveal, we have only been told part of this story. Today we are joined by Anna Lee Strachan and Michael Bix, the writing, directing, producing duo behind the new American Experience documentary, Riveted the History of Jeans, and it airs February 7th on PBS and PBS.org. Annalie and Michael took great care to tell this story and tell it right. They interviewed a wonderful array of experts, including to our great joy, many past dress guests. So if you can identify some familiar voices in the sound clips you're about to hear from the film that we'll be featuring throughout today's conversations, pay attention. Without further ado, Annalie and Michael, welcome to Dressed. Annalie, Michael, welcome to Dressed. I'm so excited to talk to you both about this wonderful documentary. But first, I'd actually just like to hear a little bit about you both and how you came to filmmaking, because this is not necessarily a linear route for either of you. And I find your kind of job trajectories and career paths very fascinating. I'd love if you could just give our listeners a little idea of where you come from. I mean, I got my start when I was doing something completely different, which was being an urban planner. I was an urban planning graduate school at MIT. And I realized one day that I hated it. And I thought to myself, if I could do anything in the world, what would it be? And immediately the answer was make documentaries. So I thought, all right, why not try to do it? And so I then went through a whole host of things, but worked for ABC News for a long time, like 25 years doing breaking news from, you know, like, elections, wars, all that kind of stuff, and then eventually became an executive producer at their documentary unit, and then transitioned to working at PBS, where the people at NOVA very quickly teamed me up with Anna Lee. And uh, I've been a science producer pretty much exclusively for many years now. Um, I did in science in the sciences in college and after, of course, um, but wasn't quite happy with just being the pure science side. Um, I always loved art and found my way into sort of a journalism school and then radio and then television and kind of honed in on science journalism as uh, my concentration. But yeah, we kind of found our ways to this particular film um, in a different way. It's sort of different for both of us. I've always been doing science, but I've also had a side interest in fashion as well. So Yeah, that was my very next question was, How did you then come to this idea about doing a show about one of the most iconic garments? You know, it's the most ubiquitous garment in the world, arguably, but also this iconic garment in American history. So I'd love to hear about how you came up with this concept to do this documentary about blue jeans. 
Michael and I have been a team for many years now, it's a decade, and uh, this one was one that I kind of came up with on the fly when we were thinking of how do we pitch some history documentary ideas in the middle, midst of the pandemic. It's very hard to shoot science documentaries, so we were kind of coming up with new ideas. And my dad actually worked for Levi's for many, many years and as a kid. So denim was definitely something that I was maybe a little bit more aware of than the average person. But I also had a fascination with fashion, just the choices people make to why they put the things they do on their bodies. And when my grandmother died, I had sort of a, I guess, a revelation for myself because I was one of the people that I didn't realize at the time that I used kind of clothes to hide and to blend in as opposed to using it as a voice to speak something about myself. And I didn't really see clothes that way. Um, it was sort of like a light for me because my grandmother, she dressed to the nines every day, full on like jewelry. I mean, she, you know, everything. Um, being Puerto Rican also is a big part of the culture. So my family is Puerto Rican and, and dressing up is like a big part of the culture. And I always admired that about her, but I didn't take those aspects onto myself and think about them very deeply until that moment. And when I started thinking about denim in particular, it was this very mysterious thing because I knew that it was something that everyone was wearing and it was something that everyone was always comfortable in, but it was like, why? And that was like a burning question for me. And that's kind of what got me going. It's like, well, why does everyone wear this garment? Why is it all over the world? I know it had something to do with like cowboys and levis, but I knew it went beyond that because I knew a little bit about indigo being part of like ancient trade and stuff like that. So I was like, why don't we pitch this idea and see where it goes? Because it seems like this is going to reveal something cool about American history. And it really was maybe a two-minute pitch. And then folks at Amex said, yep, we're interested. And we just started looking. Yeah. And I'm actually very excited to talk to you about kind of the process and the trajectory of working on and creating the idea behind this documentary and the research that you all did for it. Annalie, you just said your father worked for Levi Strauss. This is a very familiar story of blue jeans in America that starts with Levi Strauss. But that is not where Riveted starts. And that's something I love so much about this documentary. Everything about it was really unexpected and so appreciated. I would love if you can talk about the decision to reframe the narrative of the blue jean and share with us where this narrative starts, because it is not going to be the place where most people think it's going to start. We approached each one of these things completely open-mindedly. We had no preconception about the story, because if you just go into this and think, all right, we're going to tell the story of blue jeans. I mean, the things that we sort of discovered, I mean, are the story. In other words, there was no like sort of master plan that we're going to go out and bust this myth. It's just, I mean, we did what we always do, which is you sort of look at what's the story. And it turns out that the story predates Levi Strauss by, you know, hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. And so like, it would be irresponsible to tell it the way it's always been told. Yeah. Like we had a few clues going in that it was, there was going to be a lot more to it than Levi Strauss. We knew like denim, the fabric had been around for a long time, but yeah, it could, it's sort of what you see as a result of the research and how we delved into it. It was not kind of like a preconceived idea. Yeah. So inevitably by expanding this narrative of blue jeans, which is, is, is something you do so incredibly well, you're going to counter some of the most popular stories associated with this iconic garment. So a central theme of this film was really in many ways myth busting because in more ways than one, you're kind of taking these popular myths, these popular and romantic tales about the iconic garment and expanding it and complicating it in really profound and, and really remarkable ways. 
people think they know the history of blue jeans, but it's likely they only know part of this history. And you've kind of talked a little bit about it, but this was not something, as you just said, you necessarily set out to do. But I'd love if you could kind of talk to us a little bit more about this process. It sounds like you did some of your own research, but were there things that were revealed as you interviewed many of the experts that are featured throughout the documentary? Oh, definitely. I mean, like, yeah, as we mentioned, sort of this myth busting was definitely not something that we conceived from the get-go at all. It was a process that was revealed through the research, through talking with experts and sort of these clues we had from the outset. Because whenever we spoke to people, oh, we're doing something about genes, people would just say, oh, it's all Levi Strauss, right? I'm like, ah, actually, (laughs) I would think there's quite a bit. Not so much. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so if you just start sniffing down those trails of like, well, where did the textile itself come from? You know, where did the blue come from? Why is it blue? Once we start talking to people who, you know, spend a lot of time researching this, then we kind of unlocked (laughs) a treasure trove. (laughs) I mean, the interesting thing about blue jeans is that they're a pretty good metaphor for American history. I mean, in that once you start to unpack it, I mean, you discover things which I mean, you should have known for sure. I mean, you know, it's the, the fact that we didn't know this before is sort of mind boggling. And once you start to unpack it, you realize, of course, slavery, the role of women. I mean, all these things, stories that have been sort of ignored are key to the narrative, just like they're key to the narrative of America. Yeah, it's an interesting commentary on how history is constructed because, you know, at the time that these events happen, people are already writing their own narrative. And then historians even play a role in keeping these myths going, right? And you want to believe some of these stories. They're romantic, they're fascinating, but they're just not necessarily true. And they're not telling this whole picture that really enriches our understanding and speaks to, you know, the diversity and complexities of this nation. You have wonderful interviews with scholars throughout, including Dana Berry. And she has this quote. She says, as we embrace how we came to be here, we have to embrace the whole story, the whole history. Genes are a great example to think about American history and a way to get into parts of American history that we haven't always addressed. And I would love if you could just tell us a little bit more about where your origin story starts, because I think that's going to be a revelation to a lot of people. To answer your question, I mean, we start with I mean, it's funny because nobody actually knows where denim or jeans are from. Right. I mean, they they have like ideas. But so we just sort of start by going, well, maybe it was in India, Dungaree. Maybe it was in Genoa because that's where jeans might have come from. Could have been like in France and Denim or Nîmes because that's where denim came from. So we sort of start trying to like, it's like a detective story at the beginning because you talk to these textile historians and they're basically pretty honest that they don't have a clue. I mean, they have like, they're, they're like breadcrumbs out there. We start with the color blue and indigo, and it largely kind of becomes a, a story of how the United States in a way was founded, how the economic power of the United States was based in slavery and how that, how that got going. And actually indigo is a, another piece of that. People tend to think of cotton and slavery as sort of the big engine, but before that it was indigo. It was a small part of the economy, like in the mid-1700s. People don't necessarily think about how their blue jeans came to be blue. Historically, that's because of the indigo dye. Centuries ago, indigo was said to be worth its weight in gold. Competition for it was so fierce, Europeans actually called it the devil's dye. Indigo is, in fact, a weed. The process of turning indigo from this small green leaf into a dye 
is a very delicate process. So only the most skilled are, are able to do this. One of the neatest things about dyeing with indigo is the dye vat is green. It's not blue. And when you introduce a fabric like denim to the dye vat, it comes out green. And then as it oxidizes in our atmosphere, it turns blue. It is magic. Indigo dyeing is magic. In many cultures, indigo cloth has a spiritual importance. In Africa, the cloth is considered the next layer to the skin. It holds the person's soul, their spirit. Africans have had a long history of working indigo and knew the special process involved in making the dyeing and dyeing cloth. And of course, many African captives who became enslaved in the New World brought with them knowledge of how to extract the blue from the plant and how to fix the blue to fabrics. Indigo is one of the ways in which slaveholding became tied to the economic fortunes uh, of the colonial experiment in the Americas. So in the mid-1700s, there was this labor that had been extracted from Africa, and indigo presents itself as this thing with economic possibility. And then when you add to it moving the dye stuff from one end of the world to the other, it, it only increased in value. And Eliza Lucas benefited enormously from the impact of this trade. Eliza Lucas has been credited as literally producing indigo in America. She's been credited as a botanist. She's even written about in elementary school and high school textbooks. Eliza Lucas was a daughter of a colonial governor. She had studied botany, and when Eliza was a teenager, her father bought her, among many other plants, indigo. The gift came from perhaps Antigua. The South needed something to add to crop rotation, and uh, tobacco was something cultivated here. Rice was cultivated here. Adding indigo into your crop rotation was a way to find additional profit. Once Eliza gets her hands on the indigo seeds, it takes off in terms of production. Indigo was the second cash crop behind rice in South Carolina. And on the eve of the American Revolution, more than a million pounds of indigo was being shipped overseas. Eliza Lucas was probably one of the most well-known producers of indigo in colonial America but Eliza's hands weren't blue. She didn't get her hands dirty with the indigo crop. The knowledge to grow indigo came from enslaved people. They're the ones that did the work that allowed her to become this great planner that she's been credited for. Dress listeners, whatever your reason for wanting to learn a new language, whether it's an upcoming international adventure, communicating with your friends and family abroad, or even professional purposes, Rosetta Stone has got you covered. As the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years now, you can join millions of Rosetta Stone users to learn any of the 25 languages offered. That includes Spanish, 
French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and so many more. And this is fast language acquisition, friends. There are no English translations, so you learn to speak, listen, and think in your new language. And right now, you can get lifetime access to all 25 of Rosetta Stone's language courses for 50% off. That's language learning for 25 languages for the rest of your life, which, Cass, is frankly amazing. It is. And what are you waiting for, dress listeners? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, dress listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, did you know that you can save on everything from fashion to beauty, home decor to groceries, even kids' school supplies with Rakuten? Rakuten is a shopping platform that partners with over 3,500 stores across every category. Beauty, clothing, electronics, home, department stores, pets, you name it. You're already shopping at your favorite stores, so why not be saving while doing it? It really is a no-brainer. How does it work, you ask? Well, stores pay Rakuten a commission for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the commission with its members. You get paid via a check or PayPal quarterly. Membership is free, and it's easy to sign up. So join the 17 million members who have already saved at their favorite brands. Start all your shopping at Rakuten.com or get the Rakuten app to start saving today. Your cash back really adds up. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N.com. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Dress listeners, if you suffer from seasonal allergies like me, Astapro is your new go-to. It has been super helpful to me this spring as it bursts into full bloom. And that's because Astapro is the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter solution for nasal allergy symptoms. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray, and Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. You too can get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief like I have with Astapro. It gets me back in the game, ready to record the show for all of you. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go today. That's A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and Go. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. There's also this whole narrative thread about how enslaved people wore blue jeans. So this obviously is predating the Levi Strauss narrative by centuries, if not decades, or decades, if not centuries. But there's just so many incredible examples of this throughout the film, such as blue jeans did not originate with Levi Strauss, nor were they exclusively worn by, say, white cowboys throughout the wild, wild west. And I'm just curious, what other ways does your film expand beyond these popular narratives, perhaps just starting with Levi Strauss as the quote unquote inventor of the jeans? Because I loved this part of the documentary. We start with the fact that it was, I mean, that Levi Strauss was not the person who started blue jeans. I mean, you know, Levi's, I mean, he got the patent for the rivets, but that's completely separate than the fabric. So, I mean, when you look at jeans, they clearly 
were a very common fabric starting in probably the early 19th century, because that's when cotton mills, and they really started cranking this stuff out. And it turns out that the reason it was blue is because blue hid dirt, and people I mean, have an affinity for the color blue. And the output of these mills, I mean, one of the largest sort of markets for it was owners of the enslaved. So by the time Levi Strauss came around, I mean, denim was being worn by people who just worked like all over the country. I mean, jeans were being worn by, you know, laborers all over the place. Yeah. And what I found fascinating, too, about the Levi Strauss story is the fact that Jacob Davis is often left out of that narrative. Jacob Davis was a tailor in Reno, Nevada, or somewhere thereabouts in the 1870s. Nevada was, uh, you know, one of the great bonanzas at the time. There's this enormous rush of people, and great fortunes are made there from mining gold. But the greatest fortunes that are made there are not made by individual prospectors. They're made by the people who can sell goods to miners. So this lady approached Jacob Davis and she said, I have a portly husband who continues to rip his work pants and I'd like you to construct a sturdy pair for him. So he thought, well, I have all these washer and post rivets that people put on these saddles. Let's add them to all these places he keeps ripping his pants. So he adds them to places like the fly and mouths of pockets and even onto uh, the mouth of the back pocket, which is a patch pocket. Customer loved them. Obviously, word of mouth spread. Soon he had more customers than he could handle. And he wanted to scale up the business, but he was one man in a tailor shop in Reno, Nevada. So he contacted Levi Strauss, who was his dry goods supplier, uh, based in San Francisco, and offered him a partnership deal. He said, basically, let's go into business together. We need a patent, we'll take out the patent, and then we can make these riveted pants because you have the wherewithal to scale up. Levi agreed. The two of them filed for the patent and received it in 1873. The basic design has not changed in nearly a century and a half. Today, every pair of Levi blue jeans have six copper rivets that ensure the longevity of each pair of pants. The rivets were crucial in the design for durability. It's like making some kind of, you know, armor for your body that could just hold up to anything. With the addition of the copper rivets, the product becomes the most durable form of workwear available to any working American. So again, just a wonderful example of the way in which this documentary really just expands and enriches the stories that we already know. I want to talk a little bit about The Cowboy as well, because author Holly George Warren is another one of your wonderful experts. And she th- she says, thanks to Westerns, cowboys became the American figure that kind of helped us get out of the depression in a great way. We didn't have royalty. We had cowboys wearing blue jeans. They were our knights in shining armors. So this is, of course, no more exemplified than in the popularity of Hollywood Westerns. But this is an example of that nostalgia and that romanticizing of the Wild West that, in fact, masks this reality and this broad and diverse cast of figures that actually populated the so-called frontier. And I just love if you both could talk a little bit more about why this was such an important narrative thread for you to follow and maybe give some of us some examples that counter the so-called American West mythology. 
Well, one thing I think is related to what you asked, which I will say I was floored when I first started reading about Black cowboys. I mean, when I saw these photos and the historians talking about the diversity of the Wild West, I mean, it was a total like reset. I mean, why didn't we see these pictures in our history books as kids? Like, why wasn't it talked about? Why is it seem like every image you've ever seen of Westerns is white. And so that was something that we, when once we saw that, is we have to include this as part of the story because, I mean, they're wearing denim too. I mean, and somehow this was never part of the story. We have so many wonderful pictures throughout the documentary too that exemplify this. And again, that's one of those things where afterwards you sort of like are hitting yourself in the head saying, why didn't I know that? And, you know, it's a funny thing because this film is obviously a story of blue jeans, but I also I mean, think that it, it is a very powerful argument for reframing about how you think about U.S. history. And we never state that out there, but it's like when you go and tell history the way it happened, it, you know, it's totally eye-opening because we haven't looked at the world that way. Being of a certain age, I am amazed by how much just when, once you start to reframe the way you look at history, how different the world looks. And it just makes it that much more interesting and and rich, you know, and it really speaks to, which I think your film does so well, and which that quote from Dana Barry speaks to, is genes are just a lens to look at how we became American and what it means to be American. And it's not to just be a white cowboy in a Hollywood Western. <laughs> or a male cowboy for that matter. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about gender in relationship to the blue gene? Because that was a really lovely segment as well. We just both love this story. It's actually my favorite, my favorite scene actually in the film about, about dude ranches and how this dynamic in the 30s, uh, late 20s and early 30s, where even in the midst of this Great Depression, you still had a sliver of a wealthy class that were able to take vacations. And what the vacations that they took were these, you know, two-week train rides out west to play cowboy. And it created this, you know, dynamic of women who were experimenting with men's clothes so that they could participate in the dude ranch, you know, activities. American society was still not fully comfortable with the idea of women wearing pants in the 1930s. Bifurcated garments seemed so unladylike. Vacationing was a secure laboratory, especially for the women. When they looked in the mirror, which I think many Dudines did, they didn't see their old self from Connecticut or Rhode Island. They saw a cowgirl from the movies. Denim afforded many women the ability to get dirty, to hunt, to fish, to ride horses. So I think blue jeans on a dude ranch not only gave women the ability to move more freely, to experience their bodies in different ways, but perhaps also to sort of think more freely to rethink their position in American society. This was one of the first times that women felt comfortable enough to say, hey, you know what? I enjoy wearing that kind of clothing. I'm going to do it. So the American blue jeans manufacturers realized that there was a substantial market to be conquered by creating blue jeans lines for women. So you start seeing the design of jeans beginning to follow fashion in a way that they didn't previously do when they were strictly work pants. 
we must give a big shout out to Adrian Rose Pitar, who, in fact, was the one that, I mean, we were just like cruising the web and her, her research popped up because she, I mean, is that a young historian at Cornell. And she's the one that sort of done all the research on dude ranches and, you know, amazing historian. And it's like, you know, it's a great story. So big shout out to her. Yeah, and I'd actually love if you could talk about some of the uh, experts that you feature throughout the documentary. We did this the same way we do anything, which is you sort of start with basically sort of a blank slate. And I mean, the internet is a lovely thing uh, because you sort of come up with questions and you look around and all of these people, by the time we got to interviewing them, I mean, we had spent a lot of time talking to them. I mean, because I mean, our, our process is you sort of start with the story, like some vague idea of the story. And then you make one phone call and one phone call leads to another phone call and another phone call leads to another phone call. And then somebody says, well, then the person you really should talk to is that one. And, you know, it, it just sort of unfolds. Yeah. And I love it because you have a lot of historians, but you also have denim collectors and experts. You also have like the CEO and president of the Autry Museum. So you really bring this like really wide breadth of knowledge and expertise to the storytelling process, which really charts the evolution of denim and of the blue jean in American history. And you, you both did such a fantastic job. Annalie, you talked about the uh, Dude Ranch. Are there any other anecdotes, favorite anecdotes from the film you would like to share? Anything maybe that surprised you throughout the filmmaking process or that was a revelation in one of your interviews? I'd love if you could just share maybe some of your favorite moments. There are a lot of like little surprises. I think we've covered a handful of them. This, the story of the 60s, I think, and how this, the traditional narrative of denim and how we always just go you know, from rock and roll to the hippies and then to the seventies, the disco era. And it's like, we completely miss the civil rights movement. And to me, that was like a real, that was a huge eye opener that here you have all these, these young kids going to these, these protests, this huge movement in the South, and they're just not included in the story. I mean, they chose, a, they had a political decision to wear denim and they make, chose overalls. They chose denim jeans to you know, show their solidarity to sharecroppers and to fight for the right for, to vote. And there's, of course, an, an interesting eerie echo of you know, recent times there too that we didn't get to explore in the film. But you know, here you have these kids using fashion in a way to enhance their voice and to speak out loud through visuals and what they choose to put on their body. And it speaks to this other you know, piece of history, which we explore with, with slavery and with slave cloth, that um, was just never talked about before. So I feel like that was that was a really interesting story that was just not included. And, you know, we learned a lot from. For me, the thing that was sort of unexpected is, I mean, I, you know, I lived in New York during the era of hip hop. And clearly I was like aware of baggy jeans. But the notion that baggy jeans and, and the brands that, you know, that the folks who were wearing chose to pick had a lot to do with sort of subverting the narrative of those brands. In other words, I mean, you know, if you look at Ralph Lauren and you look at Tommy Hilfiger, their initial ads were all like sort of the country club, white preppies. And hip hop artists focused on that and sort of completely took those garments and those labels and these narratives that had traditionally excluded them and rewrote it by just changing the fashion of the pants. And I, I found that fascinating sort of how do you subvert like this narrative yeah that was definitely another one of my I mean I say it again I love this documentary but you're showing the evolution and one of those evolutions is from jeans 
moving beyond just being an exclusively garment of workers and laborers to become an emblem of really rebellious youth. And it becomes this symbol of rebellion, but also subversion. So during the 1950s, denim becomes increasingly associated with biker gangs and juvenile delinquency. There is a sort of fear, I think, among adults that if teenagers put on a pair of jeans, they were automatically going to become delinquents in some way. School systems literally started banning blue jeans because they identified the kids who wore them as the bad seeds. They were going to, you know, beat up a little old lady and steal her pocketbook or, or whatever. The parents' generation started to clamp down which caused a dip in sales. Suddenly families were shying away from buying blue jeans. The denim companies start to get worried. As a result, a lot of the major companies band together to form what they called the Denim Council. More people than ever are wearing denim. You'd have to look far and wide to find an American of any age who has never worn blue jeans. So they start this whole campaign first to try to counter the bad blue jean look with the wholesome blue jean look. This is the right way to wear jeans, and it's neat with a nice shirt and this very kind of healthy-looking kid. And then this is the bad blue jean. And so it's the more of the kid, like, with his hair hanging down, greasy, and all that kind of stuff. Like, see, there is a difference. You can be a good kid and wear blue jeans. Denim is really great for sports. Looks like this joker's knocking himself out trying to prove it. Folks wear jeans to get the work done and jeans to relax in. They tried to create a national denim day. They had all sorts of campaigns around the country, which are all about the discovery of America. They are about cowboys. They are about adventure and history. Blue denim is a symbol of our pioneering spirit. It goes right back to the beginning of America. Men in blue denim opened up the old west and built our bridges and skyscrapers. That series of advertisements helped reverse the trend away from blue jeans. In the last few months, more applications for the Peace Corps have come to us. By the first years of the 1960s, the Peace Corps, JFK's initiative sending young Americans out across the globe to do good deeds, they were actually dressed in blue jeans. That was their uniform. So. No longer was it that the bad kids were the only ones wearing blue jeans. I just love this film. It's such a potent reminder about the stories woven into the clothing we wear and the power of these stories, the ways in which they speak to our shared humanity, our myriad identities. I would love if we could just in closing talk a little bit about what denim means to you and what do you hope viewers will take away from this documentary ultimately? Certainly, we, we both hope, I think, that people would come away with this film with um, their eyes open to looking at history a different way, because it certainly had that effect on us um, in a profound way. You know, it's not just about the, the vignettes of the people that, you know, haven't been included. It's an entirely new way of reconsidering how history is told not just American history, but world history. I mean, any object or thing or story that you've heard that is supposed to be, you know, completely owned by a particular culture or person or peoples. I mean, it calls these things into question. It makes you think, well, how, how were those, you know, stories told? And 
I think it's just, it's eye-opening on a lot of levels. And I hope people come away with that. And, and I mean, I, I'm just echoing what Annalise said. I mean, as I mentioned before, this, this show really, it's a story of a garment, but more than anything, it is an argument for how to look at history. And the fact is you can take any, I mean, like right now we're researching a story about Chinese food, right? I mean, you know, you can take almost anything or there are lots of things you can take. And when you actually sort of scratch beneath the surface, mm-hmm. there are amazing stories that illuminate the world that we live in and really give you a key to think about how, how to move forward. Yeah, so it's, your documentary speaks not only to the power of material culture, but also the power of storytelling and who's telling these stories and how they're telling these stories. Um, and you both have done it exceptionally well. I really, you've kind of given us a hint of maybe your next project, but I really hope you do more of these stories, similar stories. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Dress listeners, we've only scratched the surface in this interview of the evolution of the blue jeans. So be sure and tune in to PBS or PBS.org on this upcoming Monday, February 7th to enjoy the documentary for yourself. And you are in for a treat because as mentioned earlier, not one, but five past dressed guests are interviewed. Tanisha C. Ford, Melissa Leventon, Emma McClendon, Jonathan Michael Square, and Valerie Steele. So we also highly recommend uh, revisiting these episodes and especially our interview with Emma McClendon on this very topic, denim. They also interview another one of our favorite fashion historians, Kimberly Jenkins, founder of the Fashion and Race Database. You've certainly heard us mention her many times on the show. And as Kim reminds us in the film, quote, the thing about the denim jean is it tells a story about who we are. It's a garment that's almost like keeping the fingerprints of our history, the creases and the tears, end quote. Blue jeans are a potent reminder of the stories our clothes have to tell, the histories known and forgotten that are quite literally woven into the clothes we wear, And they tell us stories about who we are, where we come from, and even where we intend to go. That does it for us today, dress listeners. May you reconsider the history of blue jeans in your closet next time you get dressed. We do hope that you would consider writing to us with your favorite denim stories and histories at dressed at iheartmedia.com. Or you can DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where we post images to accompany this and every week's episodes. And don't forget, we've added some fabulous new designs to our merch store at tpublic.com forward slash dressed. And you know, we love this. Items are not produced until you place your order. So go check it out. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each and every week. More dress coming your way. Tuesday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows. A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109.